welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Each week on Profiles, we bring you conversations with members of our community, as well as visiting artists, scholars, and writers to hear the stories behind their work. This week on the program, we'll hear two conversations on the topic of women and technology. In the second half of the program, we'll hear a conversation with filmmaker Robin Hauser Reynolds. Hauser Reynolds is a director of multiple cause-based documentaries, including Running for Jim and, most recently, Code, Debugging the Gender Gap. Code explores the dearth of American, female, and minority software engineers. Janae Cummings hosts. But first, we'll hear a conversation with online journalist Amanda Hess. Hess has written extensively on the online harassment of female journalists. Gina Asher spoke with Hess earlier this year when she was visiting the Indiana University Media School. Our guest today is journalist Amanda Hess, who writes for Slate and the New York Times Magazine, and whose work has appeared in a host of other outlets. She reports on culture, particularly technology and its effects on people. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. Your work has won so many awards, but one article earned a Sydney Award for Outstanding Piece of Socially Conscious Journalism. It also won the Mirror Award for Best Traditional Article on the Media Industry, and it won a National Magazine Award. And most recently, that same article helped you land one of just three David Carr Fellowships That's the inaugural award from the New York Times that honors the late columnist's legacy. That article was, of course, Why Women Aren't Welcome on the Internet, which was published in the Pacific Standard in early 2014. I'll let you tell listeners about that piece. Uh, So that story is about the online harassment of women and how the legal system and technology companies are failing to to remedy it and address it, and in many cases are pushing the buck to each other. So if you get harassed on Twitter, for example, a typical experience is for Twitter to say, you know, that might be a criminal threat. You should report it to the police. And then if you call the police and they come over, they'll say, well, that's something that's happening like on this platform that we don't necessarily know much about. You Maybe you should bring it up with them. It leaves victims in this sort of conspicuous space where it's not clear what to do. And really, there are are very few remedies at the moment for it. You told this story through your own experience. I mean, it's a tightly reported professional piece, but it's, it's through the lens of what happened to you. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Um, so, The idea for this story came when I was on vacation, actually. I was a freelancer living in Los Angeles. And I was, um, I woke up, you know, in my hotel room one morning to see this, this list of threats coming from an anonymous Twitter account directed at me saying, uh, stuff like, you know, I know where you live. I live in the same state as you. I'm going to come to your house and I'm going to rape you and cut off your head uh, because they were upset about something I had written. And the reason that I decided to write a story about this was because, 
you know, my own reaction and then the reaction of, of my friends and my editors and of the police and of Twitter were so interesting and kind of confused. So initially, you know, when I got these threats, I was kind of scared. And then I was embarrassed that I was scared by them because, you know, it's just something that happened over the Internet and I really had no idea how seriously I should take them. I couldn't know, like, who this person was, whether it was someone who knew me, someone who had been sort of stewing in anger about me for a while, or just someone who thought it might be funny, you know, to go online and do this. Like, maybe they were drunk. I had no idea. And because the police ultimately, like, declined to investigate it, and because Twitter doesn't give out information, you know, rightly so, about their users, you know, nobody could help me make sense of that to understand like how scared I should really be. And I thought that was a really interesting contradiction and that there were a lot of, you know, sort of similar contradictions in this story. And so from there, you know, I started looking into some other cases that other women had experienced and saw that a lot of people were experiencing, you know, the same thing. And then talked to some technologists and some legal experts about this problem and how, why it's so difficult to address and how we might go about doing that. So do you think that this specific person was irritated by what you wrote about? And the reason I ask is we've also seen women who are reporting in sports, women who were involved in the whole Gamergate, in other words, women who were working in game development and tweeting about their work, also had this same kind of online harassment that went way beyond what they were writing about. In fact, Julie DeCaro, a sports writer, wrote quite a column about the same kinds of harassment she received when all she had done was do her job, which was reporting sports. So what did you write about? Not that that should make one difference at all about whether you should be harassed or not, but do you did you think maybe it was because of something you wrote specifically or just because you were a woman, are a woman? Yeah, I mean, I do think it matters what you're writing about. Um, I mean, you know, the the situation is so random that it can come to anyone from anywhere. And a lot of times it's something that's personal. And so it has like really nothing to do with your career. But in my experience, when I write about something that is considered a male dominated area like sports, you know, frankly, like a lot of things like politics, I think you see a little bit more aggression from some male readers who I think, you know, it's almost as if they're guarding their territory And then also I've seen it writing about women's issues, feminism, and sex. I think, you know, there's some idea that if a woman is writing about feminism that, you know, this is one way to bring her down, which is to debase her and reduce her to her body. So that's why you might see something like like violent threats and rape threats and... Also, you know, if you're writing about sex, I think sometimes I'll see people who feel like like if a woman has written about something that's like a little bit revealing or personal, that then gives strangers the license to speak to them in inappropriate ways, right? So I do think, you know, 
it is this reaction to women having a voice. And there are some areas, I think, where people are less comfortable with that than, you know, for example, if a woman is writing about style or education or something that is perceived as more of a feminine. Healthcare is another Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. In the article, you did a lot of investigation into how other people handle this and all of the avenues that may or may not be there to support people who are trying to at least protect themselves, if not stop this. One that I I sort of laughed out loud, but then I realized how awful it was, was when you approached the police and the officer didn't write anything down and then asked you what Twitter was. I mean, you're really up against, and this is 2013. Right. So you're really up against a lot. Not only are you trying to figure out what police agency you should be talking to, but then you have to educate, sometimes educate those people who come to help you. That made it just that much easier for that officer to not take this seriously. It's just on the Internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I called the police when that happened, I'm sitting in my hotel room and I call 911. And I was in Palm Springs at the time. And so the cops who came to my door, the type of stuff that they're dealing with with tourists is like petty theft, DUIs, stuff like that. They're not the people who are really steeped in like online crimes. But if you call your local branch of the FBI, which I also ended up doing, people who are on like a cybercrime task force, these are people who are prosecuting child pornography, crimes that will land people in prison for many years. And so it makes sense for them to use their resources on a problem like that. My problem, you know, is relatively minor, but the result is that like nobody can help me. There's no like friendly local cop who can help me with like my kind of small but also to me serious problem. You know, I don't know if that's if that's gotten better in the past few years. I think it's gotten better in a in a few places. I did hear from some cops actually who read my story and who shared it around, uh, which was so gratifying to hear. And, you know, the place where I think it can be really helpful is not just in cases like mine where I have, you know, some probably random, you know, stranger harassing me, but there are all of these cases where a lot of the stalking and harassing behaviors are playing out on the internet. And so victims have all of this documentation, which, you know, you would think would be so great that they have this proof that someone has been stalking and harassing them. But because cops often tend to dismiss things that don't happen in person, it's not as helpful as it should be. One of the things that I write in the piece is that it used to be like these conflicts were dismissed as he said, she said conflicts. But now that we have all of this evidence, which is one of the great things about the Internet, it's not being taken as seriously as it should be. So what would you like to see happen? I mean, in in reporting this, and again, kind of viewing it through your own experience, what do you think some solutions are, or are there any? I mean, I think one thing that's really important is for police to be willing to investigate these crimes, because, you know, this is something that we've seen with Yik Yak, which I think is really heartening, is that Yik Yak is this anonymous 
crowdsourced app that is very popular on college campuses that students use to express little banal thoughts about what's going on in their lives and also in some cases to threaten other people or even like the entire school campus. And as these threats have either become more have been happening more often or that the media is reporting on them. We've seen some police forces contact Yik Yak or subpoena them and force them to to disclose like the location of the person and the IP address of the person who made the threat. And then those people can be identified and prosecuted. And so, you know, while I don't think that all of these crimes should end up with, you know, someone in prison, I think it's really heartening to see the police be aware that this is a step that they can take and also be willing to do so. Because that, I think, is really, you know, the main obstacle standing between a victim finding justice is like not even being able to necessarily know or hold accountable the person who's done this to them. So even if it doesn't rise to the level of a prosecutable offense, at least like I could know like who has it out for me and take some measures to either get a restraining order against them or to help protect myself. The fact that the cops are willing to do this, that Yik Yak, you know, to a certain extent is uh, willing to participate with law enforcement. I think, you know, despite all of the like really negative and sometimes scary stories that we hear about what's happening on Yik Yak, that is one part of the story that I think is really positive. So much of your work life is online. Did you consider taking a break from social media? I mean, that's sort of detrimental to a career because in this day and age, journalists want that connection with readers to be able to talk about the next story I'm working on and sometimes even to contact network with people who might be sources. I mean, you really, that's a valuable tool in your work. Did you think about taking a vacation from social media while this cooled down, or even because it's scary to read that. Yeah, you know, you're right. That is one of the more um, sort of difficult choices that you need to make because a lot of people just say, if you close your computer, then the threat is gone. But that's so not true. And I, at least, I would never tell anyone how they ought to respond to something like this. But for me, I find like a bit of security in keeping some tabs on what's going on. So I it makes me feel better (laughs) to have, you know, some screenshots of things that are happening or to keep track a little bit of, you know, what people are saying about me on the Internet so that if it ever escalates, I have this this trail of of what's been said before. And that helped me in reporting the story because I had like all of these documents of things that had happened, you know, several years earlier. But I do in general, I think I have a little bit more of a healthy relationship with social media now than I had before in that it's something that I do see really specifically as something that I use for work. You know, maybe it's a little sad for some people, but I don't use it for fun. Like I don't see... Twitter is a fun place, but it is a little bit easier for me to like check out at the end of the day or take it off my phone when I see it as something that I do for my job and not something that enriches my life. (laughs) Well, we should also say that a lot of your reporting is about technology. It is about 
our cultural shifting as technology changes what we do and we change technology. So it would be really hard for you as a writer to ignore any of this just because of this harassment. Right. Yeah. Getting off the internet is not it's not really, really an option. option no. For me. No. I did want to read a quote from the article that is really telling and now that it's been two years and some months since you wrote that, or well, it's been longer than that since you wrote it, I imagine, two years since it's been published. Maybe you can tell me if you think this is, if you have a different take on it. And it is this, until domestic violence became a national policy priority, abuse was dismissed as lover's quarrel. Today's harmless jokes and undue burdens are tomorrow's civil rights agenda. Is online harassment a civil rights issue, and will it be on the agenda? That's a great question. Um, I don't see it. I don't see that happening yet. And you know, when I talk about civil rights, I mean, will it be addressed by the law in, in a way that's not addressing it in the criminal code? So far, not yet. Uh, you know, I think it might take a long time for it to be kind of coded in the same way that we that we've learned to like deal legally with workplace harassment, for example. It's not that people don't care. It's just a real problem understanding like how that would be how that would make any sense. At work, we've decided that we can hold employers accountable for uh, harassment that they fail to address at the workplace. We've said the same thing about educational institutions, but who do we hold accountable for online harassment? Is it, you know, the platform where it's happening? I think that's one possible avenue, Uh, but it will be interesting to see how that works, particularly because when we're talking about penalizing a platform as opposed to like a school or a workplace, you're getting so intimate in the in the problem with with free speech. So I mean maybe it's an intractable problem. I don't know. But I do feel like I have this wish that there could be a way for these problems to be remedied without just having to take the most serious cases to trial. It's just too widespread of a problem for that to be feasible. And I don't, you know, necessarily think that it's um, it's a reasonable solution. So if someone is being harassed, what would you tell them to do? Um, so I try not to give advice <laughs> because um, there really isn't a clear path, you know. So I can tell people what I did and what was helpful for me. You know, like I said, I like to keep records of things that happened. So in case, you know, I come into contact with a law enforcement agent who finds those notes <laughs> useful or who takes it seriously. But really, it's just for me, I think, to get a handle on it because... Because you're a reporter and you collect <laughs> documents. <laughs> yeah, that's what I do. And that's like how I make sense of the world. And a lot of this stuff, you know... You get an email and then um, you change your email account and it disappears and, you know, it's hard to remember what happened. And so for me, it's comforting to be able to look at these records and remind myself that I'm not crazy uh, because that's one thing that you hear is that people are making it up or 
we don't actually know what happened or what was said, so that's helpful to me. We're talking with journalist Amanda Hess, who writes for Slate and the New York Times Magazine and is the winner of the National Magazine Award, among others. We've been talking about uh, your award-winning article called Why Women Aren't Welcome on the Internet, in which you talk about harassment, particularly through the lens of your own experience, but also all of the ramifications and all of the solutions and non-solutions that are out there for this, much like a world where technology and law and personal rights converge and sometimes conflict. Um, but it's that's not the only things that you've been writing about. I did find it very hard to find anything about you online. I wondered if that was a result of this harassment that you suffered or you just want to keep a really low profile. What I was looking for was kind of how you got into this brand of journalism. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm naturally kind of a shy and private person, even though I have ended up in this line of work where I've written like really personal things about myself. But I do see that as like kind of like my job. And then the rest of me is just sort of, you know, doing whatever it is (laughs) that I do when I'm not doing that. But yeah, I could tell you now, I got my start at an alt-weekly newspaper in Washington, D.C. And, you know, alt-weeklies are struggling now for, uh, you know, various economic reasons. But... I think they are, you know, in many ways, the kind of grandfathers of like internet writing and blogging, because what they do is they report news, but they also comment on it. And they're a little bit snarky and sometimes like kind of mean and brash and are interested in holding the powerful accountable or whatever from their little weekly news perch. So... I found that to be just like the best possible education and in terms of like ending up to become like an Internet writer, an online writer, even though when I started there in 2007, they were just sort of realizing that they couldn't just put out a weekly newspaper uh, and that they had to like write on the Internet and to lead with news online. So I started there and then I had like a few other jobs. I've had a lot of jobs. Um, <laughs> I worked for a year at a local uh, online startup in D.C. called TBD that doesn't exist anymore. So many of them don't. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I was there for a year and then left as it was sort of crumbling. And then for a year, I worked in Los Angeles at a magazine called Good. And then The people who owned that magazine decided to go in a different direction and so laid off the entire staff. And then I was a freelancer in L.A. for a couple of years. That's when I had the opportunity to write that online harassment story. And then I moved to New York and I started working at Slate. And I worked there for two years. And now I'm just starting a new gig at the New York Times The idea behind the fellowship, which is so new that I can't really tell you much about (laughs) it, is to bring in people who have a kind of online sensibility in, they write in a little bit of a different way, not necessarily as um, a dispassionate newspaper reporter, and 
also sort of come in with an understanding of like how people read on the internet or live on the internet. And so I have sort of strangely gotten this job at the most (laughs) (laughs) newspapery newspaper, but with a mandate, right, to do something a little bit different. Do you pitch ideas as a freelancer or do assignments come to you? I mean, I, I realize you're going into this situation with the fellowship, but up until now, because you were only at Slate for about two years. So do you pitch a lot of ideas? Or in the case, especially of maybe this recent story you were just talking about, do people come with you because you've established yourself as a writer? Do they come to you with ideas? Yeah, it's really a mix. Um, I found when I was freelancing full-time, magazines like have a certain identity, and so they're looking for certain stories. Um, and I found it really difficult to land pitches, actually. Um, which is how this online harassment story ended up at Pacific Standard. I had pitched another story to a couple of places that was about this B-movie studio in L.A. called uh, The Asylum that makes all of these terrible movies, like the Sharknado movies. And I wanted to write a story about, you know, how they work. So I pitched this story to a couple of places, and it didn't catch on anywhere. And then I pitched it to Pacific Standard, and they were really interested, and I wrote the story for them. And so when it came time for um, me to pitch the story about online harassment, they were the first people I went to because I knew that they were, like, interested in my ideas. And so after that story was so unexpectedly successful. I heard from, you know, some other editors who I knew and they were like, oh, we would have loved to write that story, to publish that story. And I wish you would have pitched that story. And I was thinking like, I never would have pitched you that story because remember that other story that I pitched you? It's like a really specific kind of skill to understand how to pitch something. And it's taken me a while to develop that. But also... I just found, like, relationships really valuable. So places that I had a good relationship with, like, I I kept writing for them. Amanda Hess, thanks so much for talking with us today. That was Gina Asher speaking with journalist Amanda Hess. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. We'll be back in a moment. This week on Profiles, we're listening to conversations on women in technology. Next, we'll hear a conversation with filmmaker Robin Hauser-Reynolds. Janae Cummings spoke with Hauser-Reynolds earlier this year. Our guest today is Robin Hauser-Reynolds, director and producer of Code, Debugging the Gender Gap. Premiering at Tribeca Film Festival 2015, Code immediately caught the attention of the international tech industry and policymakers in Washington, D.C. and abroad. Reynolds has spoken about the importance of increased diversity in computer programming and on behalf of women's rights at the Mobile World Congress, South by Southwest Interactive Conference, and Dell Women Entrepreneur Network. Reynolds has also been featured in national publications such as Wired, Forbes, Fortune, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and Fast Company. 
Prior to Code, Reynolds co-directed and produced the documentary feature Running for Jim, which won 14 awards at 20 film festivals for its account of Jim Tracy, the most decorated high school cross-country coach in California history, and his battle with Lou Gehrig's disease. Robin, welcome to Profiles. Thank you very much. You've directed and produced two documentary films covering vastly different topics. Uh, The first, Running for Jim, was a film about a cross-country coach, Jim Tracy, who battled ALS. And now we have Code, which looks at the gender gap in technology. How do you decide which stories to explore? I'm very interested in cause-based films. So whatever moves me or seems to be influencing me at that point in my life uh, when I'm ready to start making a new film. But it's definitely... It got to be a subject that is cause-based that, that hopefully will create a little bit of change or maybe a lot of change, but has the ability to inspire people and affect people. How did you find the story of Jim Tracy? My daughter was running on, the cross, on one of his cross-country teams, okay. and she was involved in an incident that happened at the state meet that caught international attention. Is that the incident where I think someone maybe fell or collapsed, I think, and crossed the finish line crawling? Yeah, that's that right? exactly right. That's exactly right. That was my daughter. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, it was. it's a really inspiring story. There were documentarians that came to us asking me if I you know, wanted to, to make the film, and I was very close with Jim Tracy. I had the rights to his life story. And so I got involved in the film and eventually took it over. I wanted to change the attention and take it sort of away from my daughter and away from the team and put it on to the importance of finding a cure for Lou Gehrig's disease. How impactful was that for raising awareness and money, for that kind of thing, for research? It's hard to say exactly how much impact a film has. I know that documentary films don't typically make a whole lot of money. So in terms of you know the amount of money that we've been able to give back and dedicate toward ALS a charity or or institutions that are trying to create and come up with a cure, you know, hasn't been huge numbers. But I know that the outreach, the number of um, film festivals we got to, the number of people that viewed the film and that now have an awareness of what Lou Gehrig's disease is, what ALS is, and why it's so important that we try to find a cure, I think there we had a lot of impact. Running for Jim examined the inspirational powers of this one man, and Code takes on an entire industry, and it seems just as in Running for Jim, your daughter plays a strong role in your, in your motivation to, to get Code made. Um, can you talk about the process of going from what seems to be a concerned parent to uh, creating the first feature documentary about the dearth of American female and minority computer science engineers? Yeah, I mean, you can imagine that you got to be a little bit insane to make a documentary film that involves a teenage daughter. (laughs) I learned my lesson the the hard way the first time. Now my daughter's 21. Um, She was studying computer science in college. She was just one of two women in the class. And this is a kid who was always pretty academically competent. She called home saying that she was feeling like she kind of didn't belong in that classroom. At the same time, The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Herald Tribune were coming across saying, hey, you want to get a job out of college? You better know something about computer science. And then the White House issued a report saying that there would be 500, well, there'd be 1 million unfilled jobs by the year 2020. And right this moment, there are 500,000 unfilled computer science-related jobs in the U.S. So I couldn't understand why we're missing half the population. We're missing women or missing people of color. Mm -hmm. And it fascinated me. I've always been interested in women's issues. I've always been interested in um, fairness and equality. I'm a feminist. 
So, um, so I decided to look into it. My daughter is not in the film. She's not really part of the film, but she certainly, um, her experience certainly inspired me to look into the topic. This issue has simmered below the surface, I think, for decades, um, and it involves so many related issues, including race and economics and educational disadvantages. How did you know where to begin? Where do you start? I started with just sort of this big idea and this big question mark in my head, which was, what's going on? How can this be? Why do we have such an imbalance in supply and demand? If these are lucrative jobs and they're plentiful, why don't we have more people in the pipeline trying to get these jobs. I also felt it was incredibly important to look at it very objectively. I remember somebody saying to me, hang on a second, you're not a coder. You don't know anything about computer science. How are you going to make a film about it? And I think that's the best position to be in if you're a documentarian because not knowing anything about it, it enabled me to ask all sorts of questions so that you know, ultimately, anybody can sit in the theater that doesn't know something about computer science and will walk away with some sort of greater knowledge about what computer science is or at least why it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, as we discussed, uh, Code is the first feature documentary about this issue. And one would think that you'd start with the top players, the names of the women in tech we know, like Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook and Marissa Meyer from Yahoo. And instead, it seemed, uh, at least from what I understand, you focused on the women and girls who are studying and working to be programmers and engineers. Um, Can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah, I I would say that for certain, the name of the companies are really well known that are in our film, more so than the name of the people that are in our film. Although within the tech world, a lot of the people in in the film um, are beginning to be recognizable. Certainly Megan Smith, who was at Google X when we filmed her, is now the CTO of the United States of America. So she's getting to be more and more of a a well-known person. Um, and thank goodness for her being a woman in the White mm-hmm. House in IT. I think there are two reasons. Number one, I really felt it was important to hear the story from the ground up, to get into the trenches and hear what's going on. I didn't want to have a film that appeared to be sort of just name-dropping with um, a lot of women that have are in high C-level positions because I wanted it to be approachable. And those are obviously women who have made it through, who have been successful. But it was also really important to me to, to, to tell the story from the trenches, as I said. So, you know, still getting into Pandora and Pixar, Twitter, Yelp, Google. Um, these are, you know, Ericsson. I mean, these are companies that are really big, obviously, and, and have important space in the tech world. Did you find that the women you spoke to at these corporations, did they recognize that there was a shortage of other women? It seems that sometimes when you know, you've been doing it for a while and you're in it and you may not realize, you know, it's just you or just you and a handful of others. And you think from your perspective, that's pretty good. But in reality, the percentages aren't really. The women that I interviewed were absolutely aware that they were the minority and that they had been a long time. The women that are, you know, engineering at Yelp and at Twitter and at Pinterest, they're well aware that there aren't a lot of other women around, and they know what it was like to go through school to try to get the degrees and to have the numbers be less than 10% probably in in their classrooms. What's interesting to me, and I'll never forget interviewing a woman engineer at Uber, and this was just an informational interview early on without a camera. She said to me, I said, how many women do you have engineers at Uber? And she said, oh, we're pretty good. She said, I think it's about 2022. 
And I said, 22 out of how many? And she said, no, 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 22%. And I just was shocked. I mean, this was so early. And I said, that's good? And she's like, oh, yeah, that's above industry average. And in fact, she's right. It was 18% is, is industry average. So I thought, I mean, that was something early on. I thought, wow, this is, this is crazy. This really is a problem when 20, 22% is a good number of women. And it seems that it's being it's accepted as, well, we've got 22%. We're okay. Did you get that impression at all that she was? I think it's just the reality they live in. And I think that 22% for her was probably a lot better than what she experienced in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So I think for her thinking, look, I, she probably has friends that were the only female engineer at other companies. So the fact that she actually had some other women on her team was probably encouraging to her. So you mentioned a bit before, by 2020, there will be 1.4 million tech jobs and only 400 or so thousand people will be filling them or have the skills necessary to get those jobs. So we'll have a million unfilled tech jobs in about three and a half years and a crisis, a serious crisis is looming. But Jocelyn Goldfein, who's a director of engineering at Facebook, says we're at a Rosie the Riveter moment. Can you explain what she means by that? Yeah. I mean, I think she's referring to the end of of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And it is a huge looming economic issue. If there are a million unfilled jobs, I think uh, the American tech industry has sat back on its laurels a little bit and still considers itself the leaders and on the forefront of technology and innovation. The problem is, is that we can't keep up with the job demand. We cannot. We're growing three times faster than we can fill the jobs. So the tech industry, in other words, um, is providing jobs, is increased three times faster than we can fill them. And this is a problem because what, what does this mean? It means that we're going outside of the U.S. to fill these jobs. So from an economic point of view, we want Americans to be taking these jobs, and that's not happening. Right. That's that's the importance of that, and that's exactly what Jocelyn Goldfein was referring to. The other part of this story is that there's a real benefit to having women on a team. There's a benefit to having people of color, economic diversity, socioeconomic diversity. I mean, let's take an example of something like Snapchat. Snapchat is a brilliant app that's used by probably over a billion yeah. people. But that was an app that was created by a couple of kids in the Silicon Valley, dropped out of college. That was their world. That's what they thought was important. And it worked. But what about creating an app that's going to help find clean drinking water? Mm-hmm. Um, what about helping a kid who lives in the inner city find a safe way to get home at night? These are real-world issues, right? And it's likely that a small homogeneous group of people from Silicon Valley, from you know Palo Alto, might not think about that. They might be onto the next app that's going to have your dry cleaning, you know, picked up and brought back to you at your at your workplace or something. But they might not think about some of these other big issues. What about a single mom that lives in a housing project and doesn't want to or isn't able to get to five different low-income housing places to fill out applications? What about creating a common app from a smartphone that she can do that with? These are things that you have to have a broad perspective in order to realize that there's a a demand and a need for that. So that in itself is a reason to bring on diversity. Beyond that, there are scientific reasons. And it's one of my favorite things to talk about, especially in front of a group of men. Men 
tend to respond well to scientific data. Mm -hmm. And so when you can say, for instance, Harvard Business Review, June of 2011, published a study called The Female Factor. And to me, this is fascinating. It states that regardless of the individual IQs of a group of men on a team, if you add one man to that team, sorry, one woman to that team, regardless of her IQ, the collective IQ rises. And the more women that you bring to that team, the smarter the team gets. Mm -hmm. So teams with diversity, gender diversity, people of color, actually have better ROI. They're less risk adverse. They're more efficient. Technology, is, it's very members only. If you're young, white, and male, you kind of get entry into the club. Um, but otherwise, possibly not. How is it that a field that so values diversity of thought and imagination and sees those as the foundation of innovation, how do they seem to so easily exclude minorities and women? I think that one way to look at this is, is that they're not necessarily excluded consciously. Mm -hmm. There are a couple things that are, that are happening here. One is that we tend to, by human nature, we tend to hire people like us. We tend to feel safest with people like us Absolutely. because it's in our wheelhouse. It's something we know. That's human nature. So if a company is started by four guys that happen to be in a fraternity together or um, in college together, then they're going to hire more guys like them. The other thing is the pipeline isn't really helping to bring a lot of women and people of color through. And what's going on there is there's a stereotype of what it is to be a programmer mm -hmm. or a computer scientist. And that stereotype is very white male. And it tends to marginalize women and people of color. And as we know, you cannot be what you cannot see, right? right? We've heard that, that adage often. And I think for a young African-American girl or for an African-American man, for that matter, or for a young white girl even, if you don't see a lot of women scientists, if you don't see a lot of founders of technological companies, then it's hard for them to imagine that they can get there. Sure. And I think that that's the other thing that's going on. Yes, there's tons of unconscious bias going on. But I think that it's also the problem that there's just not as many women and people of color coming through the pipeline. That is not, though, an excuse for somebody not to hire a woman or not to hire a person of color. Because if you want to, there are plenty of qualified women and people of color that can code. Mm -hmm. Yes, it takes more of an effort to find them because there aren't as many out there. But they do exist. When you were doing your interviews and particularly speaking to young girls, we were talking a second ago about uh, the stereotype of, of, of what a technologist is, the, the nerd and the geek. Did you um, encounter young girls who were turned off at all by that stereotype? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think most young girls are turned off by that stereotype. I think my, most young girls think that you have to be a nerdy person, a, a nerdy man, to be a computer scientist. More than that, most of them really believe that you're going to be sitting in a basement by yourself, eating stale pizza mm -hmm. and drinking Red Bull until 3 in the morning. They think it's really isolating. They think that it's nerdy and geeky and that you can't be, you know, a fun, athletic, you know, popular girl and still be in computer science. Right. That's their, that's their thought. How did they get around this uh, to get into coding? The women that have succeeded? Correct. 
the women that I know that have succeeded felt such passion for coding, for creating, Mm -hmm. for problem solving. Because when you think about it, that's what coding is. It's problem solving. It's making. It's creating something. And when you understand that writing a string of code can give a computer directions that suddenly create something new, that's really empowering and it's very exciting. And that's why it's so important to change the perception of coding and to let people know, and especially young girls know, how creative it really is. And when you think about it these days, code's at the base of almost everything we do. Mm -hmm. It's in our phones. It's in our car and our navigation system. It's in our hospitals. You can do fashion. You can do film. uh, You can do medicine. There's really not a lot you, you can't do if you know how to code. Um, I think most people don't know that pioneers for computer programming, the pioneers are women. And we have Ada Lovelace, who was Lord Byron's daughter, who is the world's first computer programmer, and Grace Hopper, another computer programming pioneer who coined the term debugging. When you were doing filming, uh, were your interview subjects aware of this past, aware of this history? Oh, yeah. The, The women that I interviewed definitely understood the fact that there were women pioneers in engineering, but that's because these women were dedicated women that had been studying it for a long time. Mm-hmm. I was unaware of it. I had no idea who Ada Lovelace was. Grace Hopper I had heard about, but I certainly wasn't that familiar with. So that was really an important discovery for me and something that I wanted my audience to know, to realize that there have been a lot of the ENIAC women as mm-hmm. well um, that helped break the German war code. I mean, these are really important, influential women who were mathematicians and computer programmers so early on because it was considered women's work. I went to the Air Force Academy, and I had to take a mandatory computer science class, and we learned how to program in ADA, and we all thought it was an acronym. I didn't find out for years that it was named after Ada Lovelace, and I'm a little disappointed um, <laughs> to have gotten that far and only now know really who or what Ada was. Yeah. So, yeah. When you were filming, did you learn anything that took you by surprise? Yes. I would say that the first thing that I learned that just shocked me was that there were more women in computer science in the mid-1980s than there are now. And there were more women in the year 2000 than there are now. So the numbers are decreasing. That's really disappointing. Is there a specific reason for that? It's a really great question. And depending on who you ask about this, they have different points of view. I don't think there's one answer. Some people believe Carol Dweck, for example, who's a Stanford psychologist who studies this, she believes that it's when the emergence of the geek genius came to the fore. And so she believes that in the mid-1980s when the PC came out, it became to be really popular, sort of a colloquial you know, household item. It changed the sort of image of, of what it was to be a computer scientist. And that in itself sort of marginalized a lot of women, whether it was suddenly that being a hacker – you know, being a computer bum, all of those were sort of this male macho, I can hack into the, you know, the bank or the Federal Reserve. And that sort of image started marginalizing women. A bit of like an outlaw type of bad. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Exactly. 
as we've discussed, uh, the low number of women and minorities in computing is becoming a national crisis if it's not one already. But there are women who are persevering. They're pursuing STEM fields. Um, they're passionate about it, and they're getting past those stereotypes and other things. But they, they still encounter hurdles, particularly educational ones. Can you talk about what some of those are and how maybe we can fix them? Yeah, the hurdles that women are facing and girls are facing, I would say the first one they face is unconscious bias, even of their parents and teachers, believe it or not. So you'd be surprised how many women I talked to who are in computer science who said to me, oh, my mom and my aunts all told me not to go into that. They told me I'd be bored, that it'd be isolating, that I wouldn't meet anybody. But they pushed through because they were passionate about what they're doing. The next hurdle, of course, is getting into school where you have teachers that tend to track you. So there were teachers that maybe would say, well, you're really creative. Maybe you're not going to be so good at math. So it's proving yourself there and pushing through. And then you get into the higher levels into college, and you're going to have to deal with being one of two women or one of three women maybe in your class. And that's challenging in itself. Mm -hmm. There's this assumption that you have to be you know, partnered with the other woman in the class, that there's something different and odd about you because you like the sciences and most girls aren't there. And then I think if you do push through and you persevere and you graduate in computer science or in mathematics and you land in tech company, in a startup, then you have a whole different set of problems, set of challenges, I would say. There's, as we know, sexism in startup culture. There's often it's a very sort of bro culture that's very fraternity-like. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of drinking. There's a lot of sort of, you know, male games, and, and uh, it's difficult for some women. Are some of those issues that have come to light recently um, with programmers and the sexism that women are facing and things like Gamergate, are those keeping women out of, of STEM fields? Are they seeing this and saying, you know, that's not the kind of culture for me. I'm going to do something else. I guess there's probably a certain amount of that going on, sure. I think that some stories that people hear, they, they, uh, they might just think, I'm not going to go there. I think by the time if you get out of college and you, you know, or you've taught yourself to code and you get into coding, I think the bigger issue is the retention level within the companies. And you see that within 10 years that women drop out of technology at a much higher rate than they drop out of any other industry. So it's not because they're having babies. They drop out of technology quite a bit faster than men do in technology at the 10-year mark. So it's definitely what women are talking about, women are saying, are microaggressions. It's the little nuances. It's not being heard in a meeting. It's being interrupted mm -hmm. in a meeting. It's not being offered the opportunity for advancement. It's your string of code not being respected. There was a fascinating study that came out very recently that said that they studied 1.4 million people on GitHub, which is an open source coding platform. And they said that when you didn't have a name or gender attached to the code that was put on open source, women's code was actually respected and used more than men. But the moment that the gender was identified, and if somebody had the opportunity to use code based on whether a man wrote it or a woman wrote it, 
more people chose the man's. Fascinating, right? I mean, it actually shows in that case that women's way of coding and their problem solving through their string of code was more desirable to the majority of people that were needing and using these until they understood that there was a woman behind it. And that's when sort of that unconscious bias came in, or perhaps very direct bias, saying, mm, hang on a second, wait, a woman that wrote this, yeah, I don't know. So the retention issues are very much a death by a thousand cuts kind of issue. And um, is there a way that corporations are starting to combat that? Yes. Yeah. And it's and it's through mentorship and sponsorship we're seeing this. You know, remember we used to have sort of sexual harassment training in, in corporations and a lot of companies I'm working with are doing more and more unconscious bias training. So even just having people in the company become aware of what is unconscious bias and people that think that they don't have it, when it's brought to their attention, I think that they suddenly realize, wow, I guess I do do that. Mm-hmm. Or they'll sit in a meeting and they'll suddenly notice that the women are sitting not quite at the table, they're back a little bit, that yes, in fact, they are interrupted a little bit, or that say Jane made a suggestion, nobody really listened or heard, Tom makes the same suggestion 10 minutes later, and everybody tells him he's brilliant. Right. So it's, it, that type of thing happens really pretty often. And I think that companies are, are doing more and more training around that. I think that's one reason why the film has been popular, and we've done a lot of corporate screenings, because it has a way of just showing what's going on, and companies are using it as a conversation starter. And I think that more companies are hiring diversity and inclusion heads, leads of, of and, and forming departments mm-hmm. that are all about D&I. Um, so that's a start. At Indiana University, uh, the Center of Excellence for Women in Technology works to address needs of participation of women in tech fields. And there are a lot of programs like this across the country, particularly at universities, I think. What can groups like CWIT do to continue having impacts in their communities? Well, I mean, I think the more that women are brought in and brought into the discussion, I think the better. Mm -hmm. Often what I see happening at universities especially, but also in some corporations, is when the women in technology groups get together, they tend to attract and bring together groups of women. And that's great. That's wonderful. But they're preaching to the choir. And what they really need to do is bring men into the conversation because this isn't about all women. It's about collaboration. It's about men and women together and the strength that that diversity brings. So I think the most important thing is to bring men into the conversation. And I had an interesting screening not long ago where all the invitations were sent out through the women in technology group. And it wasn't that the responses were great from women and not so great from men. And it wasn't until the head of someone in the IT department who was a well-respected professor who was a man sent out an email saying, I will be there and I highly encourage you to come, that suddenly the male students and men that were studying computer science started RSVPing and coming. So very interesting how even just seeing an email come across or an invitation come across, if it has the word woman, you know, woman in technology or whatever, men don't think that's for them or Mm -hmm. about them. 
So it's really a way of sort of marketing, but bringing them into the conversation and not in a way where they feel like they're going to be victimized or the finger's going to be pointed at them. And that's what we really tried to do with the film as well, was it was to bring men into the conversation without making them feel like we were attacking them or, or that they were the culprit. Mm-hmm. I think no matter who you are, computer science and technology, if you're not familiar with it, it seems pretty intimidating. What advice do you have for young women who have interest in these fields? That they can do it. And the advice I have for their parents, especially their moms, but the, well, no, both of them, dads too, especially, when you think about the influence a father has over his daughter, right? Give them confidence. That's what girls need. Mm -hmm. Girls need confidence. They need to know that they can do anything they want to do. You know, one of the worst things that you could ever say to somebody is, well, you're very creative. You might not be good at math. Well, maybe your brain doesn't work that way. The truth is anybody can learn to code. Yes, it helps to have passion. Yes, it helps to have interest. And not everybody needs to be a coder or should be a coder. But if it's something you're interested in and you put your mind toward it, there's absolutely no reason that you can't become uh, a computer scientist if you're a woman or a person of color. So I would say that the, the most important thing that a young girl should know is that she can do it and she should do it and just to keep pushing through. Code is being shown across the country, places around the world. Um, its sponsors and partners range from Qualcomm and Intel to Cisco and Dell, companies who I think are doing more than talking to talk. They're, they're walking it. Um, with this continued exposure and support for giants like this, the film could have a lot of like, great impact. What do you want people to take away from it, and what do you think is next? Well, I think depending on who you are in the audience, you're going to have a different takeaway. And we really worked hard to design that, right? So what we hear most often from men in the audience is, wow, that was really eye-opening. We hear that word, eye-opening, all the time. They'll say, I had no idea. So I love that they're leaving the theater more aware and more conscious that this is happening. Women feel validated. So I think that women that are there normally are women in IT or have some experience in IT, and they feel like their voice is being heard, and I think it's empowering for them to go out and continue to push forward for women's rights. Parents and teachers that are in the audience come away thinking about their unconscious biases and how they influence, how their own likes and dislikes can influence their students and their kids. I hope that we're inspiring change. I hope we're inspiring um, girls and people of color to look into the STEMs and to pursue and persevere in the field. I hope that we're inspiring the universities to look at how they're teaching Mm -hmm. Um, and actually all educators. I mean, the truth is we need to get coding into the classroom starting young. We need to start in kindergarten and we need to bring it into every classroom. I've been speaking today with Robin Hauser Reynolds, director and producer of Code, Debugging the Gender Gap. This is Janae Cummings for Profiles. Thank you for being with us. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. 
please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.